What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat like this particular retreat? Beginning this evening with a few questions. Questions that humans have felt and asked forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart, the deep questions, the deep yearnings that have been going on as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What's death about? Who am I? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to truly be happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how, how can I live gracefully, peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and the difficulties in this constantly changing world? with all of the challenges within me and all around me. What is it that brings me to practice? <clears throat> I suspect that these kinds of questions have shown up for you at various times in your life in both subtle and more overt ways. Our practice isn't about getting caught up in mulling or, or stewing over these questions, but rather the questions can be taken in as a motivating force, taken in as an ins inspiration towards dropping more and more deeply into our practice. This evening's uh, talk is about an urgency to awaken. And the Pali term for this is samvega, which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually it's a term that's somewhat difficult to render into English uh, because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice, and one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one, followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. Samvega, the <clears throat> urgency to practice, the urgency to awaken. It's an energy that's not at all fraught with a tense or frantic or obsessive quality. It's a quality of mind, a quality of heart that 
very often comes out of some degree of understanding the way of things. Some degree of understanding the natural laws of how it is. Which for some of you may have been sensed or first felt as the endlessness, the round and round and round in daily life. Or for others, felt through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, and the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Or some vega may be experienced through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of suffering in life in general or more specifically in one's own life. For some the urgency to practice, the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long accustomed or possibly even a new sight in relationship to the mental pain that's felt in observing or indirectly experiencing bias or prejudice in relationship to race or gender or age or sexual preference. Each and all of these experiences and the accompanying painful mental states attended by some vague or maybe not so vague sense that it really doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way, and an urge to move towards this potential other way. When Samvega first stirs us, it can be an emotional state that might be somewhat difficult or disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. While at the same time, this stirring energy of Samvega has the power in itself to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction and then connecting to that direction. I think it's important to note that continuing all along the way of our practice, Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way or another or happenings that I'm just simply an observer of. Samvega is the movement of the heart, an inner response, an inner response to various occurrences that happen within or outside of formal practice times. For me it's an inner response to let go deeper into my practice. 
it's really this flavor of Samvega that moves me, that stirs me again and again towards letting go of, towards relinquishing the painful contraction. However strong or however subtle to relinquish, to let go of the painful contraction of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it may sometimes be experienced as an urgency or sometimes as an ardency, an inspired heart-mind, a passion, we could say, for practice, for spiritual practice. Something that I'm sure some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And at least in part, maybe what brought you here to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me. And I think it's probably safe to say that this is very true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. This is really one of the wonderful aspects of all of us here right now, yogis and teachers alike, of living in a practice community such as this one. Even if it's just for a short while, we move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So, more specifically, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, moving us towards sustaining and deepening in our practice? What might move us outwardly and inwardly towards this sense of spiritual urgency? Again, what moved you to come here to practice now, to come to this retreat? There's a beautiful and very well-known uh, account of how Prince, Prince Siddhartha came face to face with what are called the Four Heavenly Messengers while he was being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphor, considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in, 
considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these common aspects of life with much more much more deeply much more deeply than had ever occurred for him before to such a degree in fact that he was urgently moved to leave the riches the ease and the comfort extreme comfort of his life urgently moved to seek the truth inspired and moved to be liberated inspired and urgently stirred toward awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and familiar habits of his life and the overt suffering in life that touched him so profoundly during those few days of the chariot rides <clears throat> isn't it really the same case for us that most of the time with the many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life both outwardly and inwardly we've reacted reacted maybe by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways or even by pretending or believing that something else is happening until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us very deeply and we respond we respond in fact in a similar way as did Siddhartha by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom we're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness anguish or fear or attachment or maybe anger or confusion in relationship to all the various occurrences of life our closest surroundings are full of stirring things stirring in the sense of samvega if we generally don't perceive them as such isn't it really because of our habits the habits that in fact render our vision dull and our heart insensitive or reactive and this can even happen in relationship to the Buddha's teachings we may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual or emotional or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and practices of the Buddha but at times even this impetus can lose its freshness and its impelling force as maybe some of you have experienced the remedy is to constantly renew it by really by turning to the fullness of life around us and within us which if we look carefully 
constantly illustrates the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is, and then showing us its cause, its origin. Its origin being a clinging relationship to what in fact can't be clung to, which is the second noble truth. And the third noble truth, the truth that there's an end to suffering, the solution, so to say, the solution being to not cling, but rather to see things truly, clearly, and simply be with them as they are. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect uh, via the path that each of you are engaged in walking at your own pace, right here, right now, in this very life. As very likely some of you have experienced and know, there can be a moment of direct vision within our own body, heart, and mind experiencing these truths quite unexpectedly a degree of understanding of one of these truths can show up. For instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear or anger or grief or yearning or clinging. Or insight, wisdom might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty or maybe a weeping child or the distress of someone that you regularly have some degree of contact with or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one or one's own illness and bodily discomfort or myriad other flavors of experience, each potentially having the power to startle us, so to say, to promote a reflective response and to stir a sense of urgency in our resolve to practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. through seeing our own experiences of body, heart, and mind directly, clearly, and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that, of course, is very available to each of us. For instance, a moment of knowing the impermanent nature of things, the changing impermanent nature of things, really directly. Or a moment of knowing that it's all anatta, it's all impersonal. Phenomena just naturally arising and passing, 
according to conditions. With these moments of seeing and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, go deeper towards the ending of suffering, or to recommit to our practice. We could say that Samvega asks, asks us to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits. To step out of our conditioned inertia. We each have many, many stories. Many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And within our life as a whole, of course. Stories that exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of Samvega. It's often actually a part of what I hear in talking with you during interviews. There are a number of wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. The stirring being done by the Buddha himself or the stirring, stirring being done by one of the arahants, the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas. Devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths and sometimes very long lengths of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, who aren't yet enlightened, who aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a section of <clears throat> short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called the Connected Discourses, the Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks who are practicing in these woodland thickets. And I'd like to share a few of these encounters with you. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. <clears throat> and on this particular the occasion, the uh, bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for his day of practice. But all the while, he kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket having compassion for that bhikkhu and desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly Remove, man, the desire for people. Then you'll be happy, devoid of lust, 
and lust meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, lust for various objects, lust, lust for various experiences. And the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. So a bhikkhu, a yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. <clears throat> then that bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue that I'd like to share <clears throat> takes place shortly after the uh, Buddhist Pari Nibbana, after his death. His closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been strongly encouraged to attain arhantship, uh, attain enlightenment before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to, be, to begin during the next rainy season retreat. So Ananda had gone to the Kosala country and entered into, the forest, uh, into a forest abode to meditate. But when the people in that area found out that he was there, <clears throat> they continually um, came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt responsible, felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. The forest-dwelling deva who lived there, aware that the upcoming uh, Buddhist council could succeed only if Ananda attended as an arahant, came to provoke and to inspire him to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Uh, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name of Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda stirred up that deva, stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. I picked this particular dialogue because though of course we're not in the same position as Ananda was, um, we're certainly often quite caught up, quite seduced by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances both externally and internally, and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things.
To me, this little verse beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not, of course, to neglect what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. In another verse, on one occasion a certain bhikkhu was dwelling in Visali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion an all-night party was being held in Visali. Then that bhikkhu, lamenting as he heard the clamor of instruments, gongs, and music coming from Visali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, Many are those who yearn for your state, a forest dweller subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding uh, a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming as well as thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva who also inhabited this same woodland uh, area out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega in him spoke these verses to the bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning attending to things as permanent, as self, and as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished that way, the careless way, you should reflect carefully meaning attending to their true nature, their true characteristics, with a careful attention, attending to things as impermanent, as non-self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. You should reflect carefully, says the deva. And the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, in this case the Buddha, on the Dhamma, on the Sangha and on your own virtues you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. Then when you are suffused with gladness you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency.
The last verse that I'd like to share with you <clears throat> is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from his alms round and then eating his meal in a woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would go down into a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu, instead of meditating on the scent of flowers, is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up an urgency for the monk uh, to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. <laughs> and the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? And the bhikkhu, one who dig, or no, the, the, the bhikkhu keeps going, one who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu then responds, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O oh spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds, we don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems uh, <clears throat> that amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha and those of us right here and now, it seems that things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings are timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicaments are as relevant today as they were in India when these verses were originally spoken. 
When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy. We experience courage, both of which help us with the development and the blossoming of faith, confidence. All of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence are essential in helping us to break through what for some of you might be some degree of a sense of timidity or maybe hesitation or fear or doubt or maybe some degree of complacency in relationship to your practice. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. In speaking to a group of disciples in one sutta, he says, rouse yourselves, sit up. What good is there in sleeping? And he actually means the sleep of ignorance and delusion. Could be sleeping though. <laughs> For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction, for those afflicted by disease, dis-ease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourself, sit up, resolutely train yourself to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Do not waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, confusion, and anguish. And the Buddha goes on to say, negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, the ground of samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment -moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourself in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and strong that he called this reality 
of suffering the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experience of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks, asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the cause, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there somewhere, not coming from some outside thing or some outside being, but that it's coming from in here, in inside ourselves, in the craving and the clinging and the fear that's present in our own mind, our own heart. And then the Buddha in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience, and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering, that there's a very available release from the cycle, and he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, particular noble qualities of heart, moral, ethical responsibility, sila, concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, and confidence. All of these wholesome qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the <clears throat> energy of spiritual urgency, samvega, that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a practical solution, a solution that's within the powers of every human being, a solution that we begin to have faith in. Possibly if we read and study the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But most importantly, that we come to know out of our own direct experience through our practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency, that develops out of samvega. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, develops and deepens. For many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard a story that I found to be very inspiring and that invoked uh, quite a sense of spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago and that continues to move me every time I read it. 
So these are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. I've been reading about weasels because I saw one last week. I startled a weasel who startled me, and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel. I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes. I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into silence as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into silence, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain, or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It, fell, it felled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. This was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing, and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data, and my spirit with pleadings. But he didn't return. I tell you I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it? if it was a blank. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity, and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with the fierce and pointed will. I remember mutinous as a prolonged and giddy fast, 
where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked, and ingested directly, like blood pulsed into my gut, my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to live as I should. I would like to learn or remember how to live. And I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. of Samvega, it feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words uh, that he offered just before his death. Words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of Samvega in them, to exhort them to keep going along the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that come from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I've found to be quite inspiring. <clears throat> o bhikkhus, do not grieve. Even if I were to leave, even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now 
Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. In closing this evening's talk, we come back around to our opening questions. As Mary Oliver, in her own way, poses them in her poem, The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is, I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. And let's sit for just a couple of moments. <laughs> <laughs> 